Kirtak, it means a steep, one kilometer high mountains out to the coasts. So there must be some local effect of the storm when they hit those rocks. We had three tents during half an hour. They were gone, flat. So we're standing there in our raincoat and whatnot. Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holtz. In this episode, we hear more from Björn Thomason, Emeritus Senior Scientist at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, about facing severe storms while following up on gold anomalies on Kiatak, Northumberland Island, in northwest Greenland. I can tell you the story about uh, Northumberland Island. I started to investigate the Tule Basin uh, up at Karnak in uh, 2001, and I was asked to do it by, by the Greenland administration. Anyway, they wanted used to to do some reconnaissance up there and I was uh, in charge of that so I said the Tule Basin it's it's uh, quite large so we need two seasons so I got money for the first season and uh, we did a uh, beautiful work I think with with a ship and part-time helicopter and covered the you know in Tule there are two two big fjords really so we covered the, the northern fjord system around Karnak, Ingrid Branding, and then the next year I planned with the same staff. I had a good staff, local uh, Danish-speaking uh, young Greenlanders to run the uh, rubber dinghies and an experienced uh, geologist, uh, three of us to, to three or four of us to, to do uh, the geology. But then there were no money for projects next year. And the year after... I applied for Gives own money and I got a quarter of a million crowns. I had created a, a project called Gold in Thule. I thought the director would like that because the director said, we have a small amount of money and it should go to something with gold or diamond in Greenland. And they said, yes, Gold in Thule. And the reason why I could make such a project, uh, propose such a project, was that the year 2001, we had taken, cover, uh, made a systematic cover of the area with stream sediment samples. And uh, some of those uh, samples came back with uh, elevated uh, gold concentrations, what we call gold anomalies. That's, that's the purpose of taking uh, stream sediment samples. You want to find the anomalies. And that was described in only distinct field reports. So we said, oh, well, uh, we have some gold anomalies, uh, I want to send two person up to check up on the anomalies. That's what you do with anomalies. You try to find the mineral you are looking for in outcrop and then sample that and describe the outcrop to, to see if it's worthwhile to continue investigations. So that's called follow-up work. So we got the money, a quarter million Danish crowns, which is not much. So we went up two persons and I had hired... I've been there in Karnak before, and there's a very helpful person called Tant Jensen, the hotel owner in, in Karnak. So he helped me with practicalities, and we had base with him. And also I knew the, the local geophysicist, the geophysical station up in Karnak. And uh, I asked whether he would be our connection with radio. So he promised to, to call us 8 o'clock every evening so we could 
for safety reasons and also to arrange shift. And then I had hired a local boat, a small uh, fisher boat, I mean, four meter long, and with a skipper, which turned out to be the mayor of Karnak. It's very fun. He had in his office in Karnak, he had a jacket hanging there. He took out, uh, took on. He said, now I'm, I'm mayor. I have my jacket on. But normally he was a fisherman. And so we rented Angmangi um, Sok Peterson. Yeah, a cheerful man. Great one. So he sailed us out to, to localities and with our gear. I had, I had one fun story. We regard uh, that area, we regard as polar bear country and the uh, rule is for safety. In polar bear countries, you, you must uh, bring arms as uh, protection against self uh, protection. So, but there are very strict rules about arms to ship, to ship arm. Uh, the survey has a, uh, a depot uh, of, of arms, and it's all according to the law with safe, all sorts of safety precautions. But then to ship uh, those arms, it's also it's quite. You just don't send them with air freight to 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 Greenland. You had to meet in in the cellar below the airport in Kastrup and go through all sorts of security and they have to inspect that. You must have permits for the Danish police and the Greenlandic police and uh, special arrangement with the airline. So. Eventually, we got our box up to uh, to Karnak with uh, a rifle and two two pistols. That's normally what what I use: a pistol for for each geologist and a rifle for the tents uh, standing in the kitchen tents. And uh, but there was a very very secure. The weapons ammunition was in this metal box and uh, with with a lock. And uh, as often happens, I hadn't got the, the keys to the box. And I've experienced that many times. And it's a fault either of the Department of Geos who looks after equipment or it's my fault. Probably my fault as being expedition leader. Anyway, I didn't have the, the key. And remember, we have to call the police in, in Karnak and ask him to open the box. And so I have a picture of the uniformed policeman standing with its bolt cocker cutting up the... <laughs> The, the lock on that box. Anyway, so we had several four field camps, the two of us, Didler and I, and the first one, Ang Maxitok, he, the, the mayor, he sailed us out and put us out on shore with our gear. We put up our tent and did our field work investigations. And then a day before it had planned, he certainly appeared with a small boat and said, oh, we must hurry. I have a storm in my, my back. So a uh, uh, storm was coming up. So we had to pack down everything very fast. And then we were in the middle of the storm. And his uh, ship was not in the best condition, I'll tell you. Uh, my friend, who's uh, uh, my companion, who's uh, very good with engines, he had one look down in the engine. And he said, oh, my God. And so he couldn't sail in. He, he was anchored 100 meters out from the coast. And the waves started to move up high. And he had a small uh, dinghy. Outboat motor didn't work for some reason. So the two of them, they were rowing back and forth with our equipment. And remember, I saw our equipment heap in the middle of that boat. And the waves and was going up. And then, and somehow he couldn't row against the waves. So he had to start 500 meters away from his ship. And then more or less parallel to the coast. Get closer and closer to his boat. So that was the first load he got on board. We were standing there 
without tent and sleeping bags or anything, and waiting for the next tour. Then we saw him uh, draw up the anchor and disappear around the point. And the storm was going on there with rain, you know, going into snow. And we were not happy. And my, my, my friend here is uh, Ditlo Krebs, a very skilled uh, young geologist, but he's got a temper. I remember he was screaming and shouting, he's disappearing with our, our equipment. But the thing was, afterwards, they came down, we were laying at the coast, and there was a, a, a moraine, you know, uh, a wall of, of big rounded rocks. They were coming down, the two Greenlanders, down from uh, from the east, down to, to us, and said, oh, there was too much wind. We had to come in, in lee of that point there. So now we must carry the rest of the equipment over that moraine of uh, rolling boulders and down to the ship there. And we did that, and it was uh, yeah, the awful weather. Eventually, we had started to sail. We managed, and we started to sail back to Karnak. And we had the wind and the storm and the waves and everything in the nose. And at sometimes. Midway, three o'clock in the morning, he uh, deviated and appears to, I can't remember whether it was because the motor broke down or probably too bad weather. He couldn't, he simply did not uh, power enough. And so uh, he took Lee there and because it was an abandoned, uh, abandoned village. Uh, but in the weekends, the Karnak people in the weekend they travel out to the abandoned uh, villages and do uh, hunting, especially Navajo hunting. So there was whole one house in good shape and two or three fem- families uh, sleeping there. And I remember coming in and when they do their Navajo hunting, apparently they always have one person looking out for Navajo's 24 hours, regardless of weather. And I remember coming in to the shore and that. A fellow was standing there and couldn't see 10 meters away and was absolutely soaking, so, uh, uh, raining in pockets. And uh, he pointed up to that house. So we went up there. Uh, I managed Chuck and his uh, companion, the two green, and uh, stay on board the boat, of course. We went to anchor somewhere. So Dietler and I, with our sleeping bags, we went up to that and the house was absolutely full of, I said, Three families, sleeping bags all over what they were sleeping in. We were offered a foam mattress and uh, went to sleep there. I remember at some time, we were, when you, you share a foam mattress, you, in your sleeping bag, you have uh, your head in each end. You have the, the, your comrades' feet uh, at your head. At one time, because I'm snoring in the night, and Titlo, he's, uh, he's very well brought up young man. He, he thought it was me snoring, he could hear it. And it was so embarrassing, and we were guests there, and we would disturb everyone. And so he woke me up there, four o'clock in the morning or whatever, and I got upset, and he said, shh, you're snoring. But there was still snoring was going on, it was not me. <laughs> but three of the other fellows. Anyway, so um, everything went good, and we stayed there for uh, next day, and... Uh, Eventually, the storm came down, and we came back to Karnak. And then was the next, uh, the, the mayor's boat, it was kaput, couldn't sail any longer. So Hans, Hans Jensen, he fixed us another contract, and I had to negotiate a new contract, and 
This was a fellow called Otto, and his boat is very efficient. She was everything worked perfectly. And Otto is a very friendly person, couldn't speak Danish, and I can't speak Greenlandic. So we're sitting there with hands, and the first uh, uh, Otto did was, of course, to double the price for the charter. And uh, what could I do? So we sailed out and to this uh, island called Northumberland Island. The Greenlander calls it Kiatak. It means uh, the high. It's here. First away toward Canada, out in the open sea. And that has been uh, renowned for its bad weather. And Peter Dawes, uh, the geologist who's mapped in the area, told me a story about his boats, uh, fishing boats, his chartered being thrown up on, on the coast and the see pictures of it by waves. Anyway, we went out there and went into camp and uh, very interesting place geologically and as we had gold anomalies that's uh, why we came there and in my reports i've uh, recommended further investigations of some good targets uh, but then come came the storm and i never experienced anything like it and we were laying uh, quite at the shore the only flat place we could find and in a small bay and i saw at some time the the wind was drawing the the water vertical up in the air, like a hurricane sink. It's local. As I said, Kiatak, it means a steep. So we are one kilometer high mountains out to the coasts. And then the, the valleys are filled by glaciers, of course. So there must be some uh, local uh, effect of the, the, the storm when they hit those rocks in that place. And our tree, we had three tents, uh, a kitchen tent and two sleeping tents. During half an hour, they were gone. Plants. So we're standing there in our raincoat and what now? And so our lock, and of course it was pouring down. So our lock, we had seen the day before uh, Greenlander uh, hot because that place in the winter time, the the people from Karnak they travel out. There's uh, Polunia, and in that Polunia there are walruses. So they do their uh, their hunting there in the winter time, and for that purpose they put a, a hut there. And you know, normal wooden huts. Uh, wired down by, by steel uh, steel ropes, steel wires to be stable with, with that wind. So we evacuated our things as best we could in the storm over to the hut two kilometers away and stayed there for six days. And that storm, I'll tell you, and it was lucky with that hut that it was real secured with steel wires, you know, Good secured because it was shaking all the time and then when you came out and you should see, I mean, white teeth all over, even the rocks, uh, stones hitting the roof, uh, blown by the wind. That's, that's the worst I experienced. And then I had to, at that time we had uh, 2003, we had a satellite telephone. So it was very complicated to phone because it was expensive. Anyway, I, I managed to get in contact with the Geos Department of Equipment and said, well, uh, there was a weekly flight to, to Karnak. It's a flight, three days. Could you uh, manage to set up uh, three tents? The guy, Jens Gregersen, by the way, he went out to, to do that, and that was in the re- weekend in Copenhagen, and everybody was in on, on holidays, of course, and, uh, about the 1st of August. Um, but uh, I'm very glad. So he, he did that, and we managed to get that uh, three new tents up in uh, the course of... Uh, those few days. Anyway, so we had the new equipment and uh, brought out and we could continue 
our UTC, so to speak. And as I said, we had another camp at, at the south side of uh, the Otto, moved us to the south side of the Kiatak, Northumberland. And I remember the first thing, there were still high waves. The first thing we did was to secure, to scout the area again. We camped near, camped near the shore. There was no choice to uh, scout the area for caves or places where we could hide if our tents they went again. And we found some uh, some cave where we could have survived somehow. And uh, and then we had our last camp again further to the east. And I remember the last night my uh, my companion and friend uh, Ditlow Krebs, he took out a bottle of champagne excellent French champagne. And it means that he's been carrying that thing around for all the field camps. And you know, everything you go and show, you have your bag in order to carry it up or hide tight and, and things like that. So that was the last night and proper champagne glasses too. And uh, so we said, go there and thank you for a good field season. Then we flew back to civilization. I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next and last episode of Polar Podcasts, we hear more from Professor Alan Nutman about his lifelong passion for making geological maps.